Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I missed you so much last week. I'm so happy to be back. I worked on something fun. Of course, I can't talk about it yet, but if you follow me on Instagram, you got to see some sneak peeks in my stories. Before we begin, just a reminder that all kids and teens stories are due by September 22nd. So if you want to participate or you want your kids or students to participate in the kids or teen Halloween special, that is the deadline. Uh, I missed you guys so much. Let's just go ahead and jump into the stories, shall we? This first story is something I was so excited to produce. I don't know about you, but I adore old movies. If you've ever been one to shy away from them because you think they'll be boring or you won't get past the black and white, I cannot tell you how wrong you are. Please give them a go. I can even give you a list of my favorites if you need a jumping off point. Well, one great genre of old movies is gangster movies. Even if you haven't actually seen one, then you've probably seen Home Alone and the old movies he watches and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Author Malcolm Johnson sent me this beautiful, noir-esque horror story. I absolutely fell in love with it. Malcolm also has a horror blog called The Horror Show. I will link that in the show notes, so go give him some love and clicks. Now, I present to you, It's Only a Paper Moon. Yes, it's only a canvas sky, hanging over a muslin tree. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. Without your love, it's a honky-tonk parade. Without your love, it's a melody played in a penny arcade. Rain beats against the window as music starts to fade away in the nightclub's hallway. The last of the dancers make their way down the hall, eager to change and leave for the night, even if it means a walk in the rain. Their muffled voices drift away on the other side of the door. The tiny room of Shelley Cole is dingy and smells of mold and something else. Something Sour. The club's main singer paces in her dressing gown, crumples the newspaper in her hand. The date reading August 16th, 1944, and tosses it onto the dirty wood floorboards. She's done for the night. So done. Tears stream down her cheeks as her breasts dance under the sheer silk of her dressing gown. Her raven hair and dark eyes catch the light from the small lamp on her dressing table from time to time and seem to sparkle and glisten. Are you serious this time? Or is this another ploy? I mean, I'm not going to stay if you're just putting me on again. I can't take it no more. A tall man stands in the corner of the room and stares out of the darkness. He looks over to the weeping woman and wishes he could tell her what she wants to hear. He wishes he could tell her anything. His suit is filthy and wet with the night's rain. He stares out from the shadows in the corner of the small room and longs for her. So close. 
so far away. You big lug, leading me around by the nose. She wipes her tears away, and her voice grows louder. He glares. If she keeps this up, they'll track him down, break in, and find the two of them. Then what? Being in this closet of a room didn't leave a lot of options. Her gown shimmers in the streetlight, streaming through the filthy window. And she looks... radiant. Glowing. Her voice slips through the room like syrup and fills his ears with song, even when she isn't singing. He can hear heavy footsteps on the stairs. Not the footsteps of small dancers, but the thumping of blunt men. The club was packed earlier, but he's not sure it matters to the likes of the mob. Hell, they probably own the joint. For all he knew, they owned her. He strains to hear any sign of them coming closer. Somewhere down the hall, dancers chatter make their way outside in the glow of the club lights as it starts to close up for the night. Guy Lombardo proclaims that some dame is making him crazy. There's something funny about that, but he can't laugh about it now. Her wailing takes him by surprise as she screams out, Why'd you go and leave me in the first place? You said you'd always take care of me. You promised, Tommy. He holds up his hands and waves his arms stiffly, then glances at the door. Shelley needs to be quiet. Quiet as a mouse. He presses back into the shadows as the door jam splinters inward, and the door of her dressing room springs open. Subtle, these boys ain't. Two silhouettes of mountains fill the doorway. Well, well, well. One of the mountains moves into the room and has a look around. They either don't see him or figure two to one is good odds in their favor. You turned out to be quite a little artist, baby. Totally bent. The man's eyes roam over her and she pulls her gown shut. Says you. She tries to hold her own and if she's scared, she doesn't act it. Listen, Biscuit, I don't care what you did or didn't do. Don't matter now anyway which way you cut it. (laughs) He lets out a chuckle as the other mountain moves into the room and slowly closes the door behind him. He shoves a chair under the knob to keep the door closed, then folds his arms over his massive chest. I don't care what you or your gun mob think. I don't have any desire to talk to you hoods. Scram! Her voice cracks, a dead giveaway to the fear swelling in her. Poor thing. Easy, he whispers as he pulls the cannon from his pocket, or you'll be taking the pistol route out of town. Shelley shrieks, and the man in the shadows is filled with rage. This fathead has gone too far. The man in the shadows lifts the alley apple from the table next to him and grips it in his dirty hand. He can feel the weight of the blunt item in his hand and likes it. The brick feels rough to the touch, but somehow his hands feel rougher. 
He stomps out of the shadows, and the two men turn to face him. Bravado turns to horror as the light floods over the lurker's face and clothing. Dirty and stinking, the lurker growls low through sewn and blackened lips. Bits of odd herbs and tatters of poultices drip and slither from the sides of his mouth like worms as another low, dull, growling mumble rumbles into the space. His milky white eyes glare through the half-light as he stomps deeper into the room. His skin is a deep, withered gray, like parchment, and his dim eyes are ringed with dark circles. A zombie. The head cannon goes off, but it's an impulse trigger pull fired from the hip out of fear, not desire to kill. The shot goes wide and into the wall. The men stare on. Their eyes are filled with fear. Shouts and calls fill the hallway outside as fists pound at the door and shrill voices ask if the club singer is alright. The second man struggles to free his weapon from his coat. He doesn't have a chance. The heavy brick crashes into the side of his head hard, and he goes down for the count and hits the floor like a sack of potatoes. Shelley's screams fill the room as Tommy turns to face the final, now lone mountain of a gunman. Look out, Tommy! The gun goes off again, but this time the deadly extension of the man's hand is leveled right at Tommy's chest. There's no quick-witted comment, no gunman bravado, just an explosion that opens a small hole in Tommy's chest and a larger one in his back. A black, brackish liquid splatters against the wall. Another shot rips into his shoulder, but it doesn't matter. He stumbles back and slumps against the wall and slides down to the floorboards. The gunman shivers as sweat pours over his face and hands. Jesus! A lamp crashes into his back and he winces. He reels around and catches the woman across her face with the back of his hand. Shelley yelps out and stumbles back into her dressing table. Glass breaks and items burst into life and dance their way to the cheap carpet as she drops to the floor, far less gracefully than she dances. The gunman pants and looks from his would-be assailant to the woman on the floor, clutching at her cheek and sobbing. The hallway fills with chatter and calls as the growing crowd continues to try and get through the door. Between the chair and the man laying in front of it, they can't budget. It won't be long now before the bulls show up. He'll have to take care of this and get up fast. Okay, doll. He levels the gun at her. Where's the dough? His hand shakes. The stirring behind him makes him gasp. He turns and sees Tommy rise up from the floor. 
rising up for the second time this eve to take care of his girl. Shots ring out and bullets fly as Tommy closes the distance between himself and the gunman. His ear explodes and black blood flies. His arm rips open as another bullet rings true. His leg bursts at the thigh. All too late. All too weak to stop what's coursing through Tommy's body. The gunman's scream is cut off as Tommy's dirty, rotting hands bind his throat and squeeze. The gunman tries to hit Tommy with the gun, but it doesn't phase the living corpse at all. A grin pulls at the corners of his mouth, and dark liquid snakes down his chin. The gunman sees the horror that is Tommy up close now, sees the crude thread that holds the terrible lips shut. He smells the muck that drips from the corners of the man's mouth, sees the leaves and oily brown that glistens on the dead thing's lips, and the eyes, the cruel, milky eyes that narrow as more pressure is applied. The gunman has seen the look of death before, just not moving. He remembers as his vision starts to go dark, and the pain in his airway starts to give way to the limp darkness where he's seen this man, this thing, Before, days earlier, at the man's funeral. Time flies. The questions she had to answer were moot. It was obvious to the goons when they saw the scene before them that this was more of the same. The mob cleaning house. She'd been roughed up and some tough guy had dispatched the two and made like a bird and flown out the window. The cops had her kick it apart for them, told her they'd be watching her and she should wise up before she ended up dead. Then they slipped away and out as the meat wagon took away the dead. There was no question that she didn't do the deed herself. These two mountains were manhandled in a big way. A crushed skull on one, and another with his neck, looking like a few sausages crudely wrapped together and his head turned almost all the way around. No dame had that strength. Not by herself, anyway. Shelley sits and thinks it all over, as she stares out of the window of her little apartment. Thinks about the money, their money, and what she'd do with what's left over. She'd paid a pretty penny for that old lady to work her magic on Tommy. Money well spent. He did say that he'd always take care of her. He always said that. She was sure he didn't mind what she'd done to him. Water under the bridge now, anyway. None of that mattered anymore. She takes a drag on her cigarette and turns up the radio. Something slow and easy drifts out into the dark room and tears fill her eyes as she tries to forget everything. She knows she'll never be able to, however. Those eyes, Tommy's milky, white, sad eyes. 
Something moves in the alley, and her eyes narrow. Smoke swirls around her head as the cigarette falls from her fingers and onto the floor. Tommy stomps up to her window and lightly raps on it as the rain washes over everything. No, no, you can go away now. She shakes her head as he knocks again, harder now. His terrible eyes stare at her blankly. Go away, Tommy. She backs up and her breathing grows more rapid. You did good, and now you gotta go. I'm okay now. You need to go away. He gives her the once over, cocks his head to the side, lowers his arm. She stares at him and whispers, Under her breath, she moves closer to the window. She screams, Beat it! Get the hell away from me! She doesn't have time to avoid the glass that rains in on her as his arms crash through the window pane. She falls back into the room and hits the floor hard. The wind leaves her body in a huff as Tommy crawls into the room. He drags himself up and in effortlessly. Dazed, she scrambles to her knees and makes for the door. Glass punctures her knee and she screams as she rolls onto her side. She looks back towards Tommy and pushes herself backwards with her hands, slithering towards the door on her backside. Go away, Tommy. You're scaring me. Leave me alone the hell away from me Mm -hmm. Tommy's groan sounds mournful his arm reaches out as he stomps over the broken glass she winces when she notices the massive shard of glass lodged into his guts entrails work their way out of the wound with each step she gags at the visual and the rotten smell and scrambles back and away from the horror before her. Her mind frantically grasps at the strange word the old voodoo lady had given her to release Tommy from the world again. Tommy's face is sad and his brow is furrowed. He's filled with nothing but love for her. He'd do anything for her had done everything for her. He even had given his life for her. His love for her broke all boundaries. Tommy looms over her and blood drips onto her bare feet. She knocks into the desk and sends the light crashing to the floor. The room goes dark. Fear and disgust course through Shelley as her eyes dart around for anything that might help her. When the word the old woman croaked out to her hits her like a ton of bricks. She shrieks out, Seth Ratna! Tommy feels his legs go weak, feels the life slip from him as his eyes go wide in the darkness. He drops like a stone and his body collides with hers 
hard. She gasps. Air fills her lungs for the last time as the huge shard of glass wedged into Tommy's body pierces her flesh and brings the curtain down on her life. She wants to cry out, but withers away before she has the chance. Shock and terror stop her heart before her fatal wound can. The light leaves her lovely brown eyes as tears fill them. Tommy reaches up and touches her face. Then he reaches for his lips and tears away the heavy thread. Gore, herbs, and a small shell fall from his mouth. He whispers, I love story of the evening is a classic tale by Seamus Fraser. It's called Florinda. Did you and Miss Reeve have a lovely walk, darling? Claire asked of the child in the tarnished depths of glass before her. Well... It was lovely for me, but not for Miss Reeve, because she tore her stocking on a bramble, and it bled. The stocking? No, that ran a beautiful ladder, said Jane, very solemnly. But there were two long tears on her leg, as if a cat had scratched her. We were going along the path by the lake when the brambles caught her. She almost fell in. She did look funny, mummy. Hopping on the bank like a hen blackbird a cat's playing with. And squawking. Poor Miss Reeve. Your father's going to have that path cleared soon. It's quite overgrown. Oh, I hope not soon, mummy. I love the brambly places and what the birds and rabbits will do if they're cut down. I can't imagine... The thickety bushes are all hopping and fluttering with them when you walk, and the path wriggles as if it were living too, so you must lift your feet high and stamp on it the way Florinda does. But Claire was not listening anymore. She had withdrawn her glance from Jane's grave elfin features in the shadowed recesses of the glass to fix it on her own image, spread as elegantly upon its surface as a swan. And if Daddy has the bushes cut down, Jane went on, what will poor Florinda do? Where will she play? There will be no place at all for the little traps and snares she sets. No place for her to creep in and whistle in and tinkle into laughter when something funny happens. 
like Miss Reeve, caught by the leg and hopping. This was the time when her mother was not listening, that Jane could talk most easily about Florinda. She looked at her mother's image, wrapped in the dull mysteries of grown-up thought within the oval Chippendale glass, and thence to the Rococo frame of gilded wood, in whose interlacing design two birds of faded gilt, a bat with a chipped wing and flowers whose golden petals and leaves showed here and there little spots and tips of white plaster, like a disease, were all caught forever. That's how I met Florinda. She was chattering quite confidently now, now that she knew that it was only to herself. I had been down to the edge of the lake, where there are no brambles, you know, with the lawn side, and I knelt down to look at myself in the water, and there were two of me. That's what I thought at first. Two of me. And then I saw one was someone else. It was Florinda, smiling at me, but I couldn't smile back, not for anything. There we were, like you and me in the glass, one smiling and one very solemn, and then Miss Reeve called and Florinda just went, and my face was alone and astonished in the water. She's shy, Florinda is, and sly too. Shy and sly, that's Florinda for you. The repeated name stirred Clara to a vague consciousness. She had heard it on Jane's lips before. Who is Florinda? She asked. Mommy, I've told you. She's a doll, I think. Only large, large as me. And she never talks, not with words anyway. And her eyes can't shut, even when she lies down. I thought she was called Arabella. That's the doll Uncle Richard gave me last Christmas. Arabella does close her eyes when she lies down. And she says, good night, Mama because of the gramophone record inside her. But Florinda's different. She's not a house doll. She belongs outside, though I have asked her to come on to tea on Christmas Eve. Well, darling, I've lots of letters to write, so you just run along to the nursery and have a lovely tea. So Florinda was a doll, an ideal doll, it seemed, that Jane had invented in anticipation of Christmas, Nine in the new year, Jane was growing perhaps a little old for dolls. A strange child, thought Claire, difficult to understand, in that she took after her mother, though in looks it was her father she resembled. With a sigh, Claire slid out the drawer of the mahogany writing desk. She distributed writing paper and envelopes, the Christmas cards, reproductions of Alcan prints, in neat piles over the red leather, and opening her address book, set herself to write. Roger came in with the early December dusk. He had been tramping around the estate with Wakefield, the agent, and the cold had painted his cheeks blue and nipped his nose red so that he looked like a large, clumsy gnome. He kissed Claire on the nape, and the icy touch of his nose spread goose flesh over her shoulders. You go and pour yourself a whiskey, she said, and thaw yourself out by the fire. I'll be with you in a minute. She addressed two more envelopes in her large, clear hand, and then, without looking round, said, Have we bitten off rather more than we can chew? There's an awful lot to be done, said her husband from the fire. 
So much, one hardly knows where to begin. The woods are a shambles. Nissen huts, nastiness, and barbed wire. One would have thought Uncle Eustace would have made some effort to clear up the mess after the army moved out. But darling, he never came back to live here. He was too wise. Too ill and too old, and he never gave a thought to those who'd inherit the place, I suppose. He never thought we'd be foolish enough to come and live here, anyway. Roger's uncle had died in a nursing home in Bournemouth earlier in the year, and Roger had come to these acres of Darkshire Park and Woodland, and the somber peeling house, Fowling Hall, set among them. At Claire's urging, he had tried to sell the place, but there were no offers, and now Roger had the obstinate notion of settling here, and trying to make pigs and chickens pay for the upkeep of the estate. Of course Claire knew there was something else behind this recent interest in the country life. Nothing had been said, but she knew what Roger wanted, and she knew, too, that he would hint at it again before long. The forbidden subject. She stacked her letters on the desk and went to join him by the fire. There's one thing you can do, she said. Clear that path that goes round the lake. Poor Miss Reeve tore herself quite nastily on a bramble this afternoon walking there. I'll remind Wakefield to get the men on the job tomorrow. And what was Jane doing down by the lake just now as I came in? I called her and she ran off into the bushes. My dear, Jane's been up in the nursery for the last hour or more. Miss Reeve's reading to her. You know she's not allowed out in this raw weather except when the sun's up. The doctor said, Well, I wondered. I only glimpsed her, a little girl in the dusk. She ran off when I called. One of the workmen's children, I expect. Perhaps. Strange, I didn't think of that. He took a gulp of whiskey and changed the subject. Claire, it's going to cost the earth to put this place properly in order. It would be worth it if... If... He added with an effort. I mean, if one thought it was leading anywhere. So it had come out. The first hint. You mean if we had a son, don't you? Don't you, Roger? She spoke accusingly. I merely meant, well, yes. Though, of course, she didn't let him finish. But you know what the doctor said after Jane. You know how delicate she is. You can't want... If she had a brother, Roger began. Claire laughed. A sudden shiver of laughter. And held her hands to the fire. Roger, what an open hypocrite you are if she had a brother. When all the time you mean if I had a son. And how could you be certain it wouldn't be a sister? No, Roger. We've had this out a thousand times in the past. It can't be done. She shook her head and blinked at the fire. It wouldn't work out. Roger went into the nursery, as was his too irregular custom to say goodnight to Jane. She was in her pink fleecy dressing gown, slippered toes resting on the wire fender, a bowl emptied of bread and milk on her knees. Miss Reeve was reading her a story about a princess who turned by enchantment into a fox. Don't let me interrupt, Miss Reeve. I'll look in again later. 
Oh, do come in, Mr. Whaley. We're almost ready for bed. I was sorry to hear about your accident this afternoon. It was such a silly thing, really. I caught my foot in a slip noose of a bramble. It was as if somebody had set it in the path on purpose, only that that would be too ridiculous for words, but it was a shock, and I tore myself painfully, trying to get free. There was still the ghost of panic, Roger noticed, in Miss Reeve's pasty, pudgy features, and in the signaling behind the round lenses of her spectacles. It's not a very nice path for a walk she added, but one can't keep Chain away from the lake. I'm having all the undergrowth cleared from the banks, said Roger. That should make it easier walking. Oh, that'll be ever so much nicer, Mr. Whaley. Florinda won't like it, thought Jane, sitting stiffly in her wicker chair by the fire. She won't like it at all. She'll be in a wicked temper, will Florinda? But she said aloud in a voice of small protest. For what was the use of speaking about Florinda to grown-ups? It won't be nice at all. It will be quite horribly beastly. The men didn't care for the work they had been set to do. It was the skeletons, they said and they prodded suspiciously with their implements at the little clumps of bone and feather and fur that their cutting and scything had revealed. There was a killer somewhere in the woods. Owls, said one, stoats, said another, but old Renshaw said glumly it was neither bird nor beast, that it was something that walked that shouldn't, and this infected the others with a derisive disquiet. All the same, fifty yards of path were clear during the morning, which took them beyond the small Doric pavilion that once served as a boathouse and was reflected by a stone twin housing the lock mechanism on the eastern side of the lake. Miss Reeve took Jane out in the afternoon to watch the men's progress. Jane ran ahead down the cleared path, pausing at the pavilion to hang over the flaking balustrade and gaze down into the water, whispered something, shook her head, and ran on. Hello, Mr. Renshaw. Alone? She cried as, rounding a sudden twist in the path, she came upon the old man hacking at the undergrowth. Renshaw started and cut short, and the blade bit into his foot. This accident stopped work for the day. It wasn't right, Miss Jane, to come up on me like that, he said, as they were helping him up to the house. You gave me a real turn. I thought... I know, said Jane fixing him with her serious, puzzled eyes. And she was there, too, watching all the time. Whatever the killer was, it moved its hunting ground that night. Two white Orpingtons were found dead beside the arks next morning. Their feathers scattered like snow over the bare ground. And it's not an animal, neither, said Ron, the boy who carried the mash into the runs and had discovered the kill. What do you mean it's not an animal? asked Wakefield. I mean, their necks is wrong, Mr. Wakefield. Oh, get away, said Wakefield. But the following morning, another hen was found lying in a mess of feathers and blood, and Wakefield reported to his master. It can't be a fox, sir. 
that head's now been bitten off. It's been pulled off, sir, and there was this, sir, found by the arcs. It was a child's bracelet of blackened silver. The path was cleared, but on the farther side of the lake, the shrubberies that melted imperceptibly into the tall woods bordered it closely. Here Jane dawdled on her afternoon walk. At the bend in the path near the boathouse, she waited until her governess was out of sight, and then called softly into the gloom of yew and rhododendron and laurel. I think you're a beast, a beast, and I'm not going to be your friend anymore. Do you hear? And you are not to come on Christmas Eve, even if you're starving. There was a moment in the shadows, and she glimpsed the staring blue eyes and pinched face and the tattered satin finery. And it's no use following us, so there. Jane stuck her tongue out as a gesture of defiance and ran away along the path. Are you all right? asked Miss Reeve, who had turned back to look for her. I thought I heard someone crying. Oh, it's only Florinda, said Jane, and she can sob her eyes out now for all I care. Jane, said Miss Reeve severely, how many more times have I to tell you Florinda is a naughty fib, and we shouldn't tell naughty fibs, even in fun? It's no fun, said Jane, so low that Miss Reeve could hardly catch a word. No fun at all being Florinda. A hard frost set in overnight. It made a moon landscape of the park and woods and engraved on the nursery window panes, sharply, as with a diamond, intricate traceries of silver fern. The bark of the trees was patterned with frost like chainmail, and from the gaunt branches, icicle daggers glinted in the sun. Each twig of the bare shrubs had butted its teardrops of ice. The surface of the lake was wrinkled and gray, like the face of an old woman. And Wakefield says if it keeps up, we may be able to skate on it on Boxing Day. But by midday, the temperatures rose, and all of outdoors was filled with a mournful pattering and dripping. Towards evening, a dirty yellow glow showed in the sky, and furry black clouds moved up over the woods, bringing snow. It snowed after that for two days, and then it was Christmas Eve. You look like the Snow Queen, but you smell like the Queen of Sheba. Must you go out tonight, Mummy? Darling, it's a bore, but we promised Lady Graves, so we have to. You should have kept your fingers crossed, but you'll be back soon. In time to catch Father Christmas climbing down the chimneys, I expect. But earlier than that... Promise? Much earlier than that. Daddy wants to get back early, anyway. He and Wakefield had a tiring night sitting up with a gun to guard their precious hens. But she... It never came, did it? Not last night, and now you go to lovely sleeps. And when you wake, perhaps Father Christmas will have brought you Florinda and his... No, cried the child. 
Not Florinda, mummy. Please. What a funny thing you are, said Claire, stooping to kiss her. You were quite silly about her a few days ago. Jane shivered and snuggled down in the warm bed. I've changed, she said. We are not friends anymore. After the lights were out, Jane imagined she was walking in the snow. The snowflakes fell as lightly as kisses, and soon they had covered her with a white, soft down. Now she knew herself to be a swan, and she tucked her head under a wing, and so fell asleep on the dark, rocking water. But in the next room, Miss Reeve, who had gone to bed early, could not sleep because of the wind that sobbed so disquietingly around the angles of the house. At last, she put out a hand to the bedside table, poured herself water, groped for the aspirin bottle, and swallowed down three tablets in a gulp. It was as she rescrewed the top, she noticed that it was not the aspirin bottle she was holding. She could have sworn that the sleeping tablets had been in her dressing table drawer. Her first thought was that someone had changed the bottle on purpose, but that, she told herself, would be too absurd. There was nothing she could do about it. The crying of the wind mounted to shrill, broken fluting that sounded oddly like children's laughter. The first thing they noticed when the car drew up, its chained tires grinding and clanking under the dark porch, was that the front door was ajar. Wait here, said Roger to the chauffeur. There seems to have been visitors while we were away. Claire switched on the drawing room lights and screamed at the demoniac havoc they revealed. The chairs and tables were overturned, the carpet a litter of broken porcelain, feathers from the torn cushions and melting snow. Someone had thrown the heavy silver inkwell at the wall glass, which hung askew, its surface cracked and starred, and the delicate frame broken. No sane person, Roger began. But already, Claire was running up the stairs to the nursery and screaming, Jane! Jane! As she ran. The nursery was wrecked, too. The sheets clawed in strips. The floor adrift of feathers from the ripped pillows. Only the doll, Arabella, with a shattered head, was propped up in the empty bed. When Claire touched her, she fell backwards and began to repeat, Good night, Mama. As the mechanism inside her worked, they found Jane's footsteps in the snow, leading over the lawn in the direction of the lake. Once they thought they saw her ahead of them, but it was only the snowman Roger had helped her to build during the afternoon. There was a misty moon, and by its light they followed the small, naked footprints to the edge of the lake. But their eyes could make out nothing beyond the snow-fringed ice. Roger had sent on the chauffeur 
to a bend in the drive where the car headlights could illuminate the farther bank. And now, in the sudden glare, they saw in the dark center of the ice the two small figures. Jane in her nightdress, and beside her a little girl in old-fashioned blue satin, who walked oddly and jerkily, lifting her feet and stamping them on the ice. They called together, Jane, Jane, come back. She seemed to have heard, and she turned, groping towards the light. The other caught at her arm, and the two struggled together on the black, glassy surface. Then, from the stars it seemed, and into their cold hearts, fell a sound like the snapping of a giant lute string. The two tiny interlocked figures had disappeared, and the ice moaned and tinkled at the edges of the lake. Thanks for listening. Fun fact about the music from the first story. Well, it's not really a fun fact, more of a bummer fact. The song playing when Tommy is knocking on the window of Shelley's apartment is called Gloomy Sunday. There's a bit of lore behind that song. It's actually also known as the Hungarian Suicide Song. Billie Holiday did a beautiful version of it in English, but I included it in the original Hungarian. Now, The reason it's known as the suicide song is because at least 18 deaths in Hungary are known to have close links to the song. One man, a shoemaker named Joseph Keller, included lyrics in his suicide note. Several others were found actually clutching the song's sheet music in their dead fists. Two people shot themselves while a band was playing the song, and others were said to have been playing it when they decided to end their own lives. You think that's bad. Those are just the deaths that happened in Hungary. In the 1930s, both Time Magazine and the New York Times even did reports on the high number of deaths related to the spooky ballad, which are rumored to be in the maybe close to 100 or over, depending on who you ask. Of course, a lot of this is probably coincidence, urban legend, or just bad timing. It did come out during the Great Depression after all. I suggest googling it if you have the time and reading up on it. The info I just gave you came from the History Channel's website, but I've been fascinated by the story for a long time and there's a lot of like information um, from different websites about it. You can also look up the lyrics and see how much of a bummer the song is. In the English version, at least in the Billie Holiday version, It has a last verse that proclaims that the protagonist of the story was only dreaming. But I've heard that the original version ends on a down note, without the hopeful last verse. Hungarian listeners, can you let me know if the original is just an all-around bummer, or do you have the it-was-just-a-dream edition at the end? I would love to know. I've been wondering about this song for years. It's really creepy, and it's got such a, you know dark past and how many songs have such a high you know body count anyway okay let's move off that and let's go to patreon shout outs shall we 
This week, I would like to thank Mandy Yip, Elizabeth Snelson, Saudith Sanchez, Kelly Brennan, Chloe Salkield, Arkista Hansen, Quinlan I.R. Shepard, Andrea R.L. Platt, and Jasmine Solis. Thank you so much. And again, I'm so sorry if I pronounced your name wrong. Seriously, feel free to email me too if I did. I would love to know how to pronounce everything correctly. It helps me with future stories if I ever get a name like that. Also, let me give you just a huge, 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 huge hug over the airwaves. Thank you so much, you guys. You mean so much to me. Your support means so much to me. And I'm hoping to have a lot more bonus content in the future. I actually have something cooking up, and I know I've been talking about this all summer, but because of the heat this summer, this is so weird, but literally the weather made me stop doing this cool thing that I'm about to do for you guys. So this winter, something cool is coming out, and I'm really excited, and I'm really excited for you guys to see it. Remember, um, deadline for kids is and, and teens is September 22nd. Remember to tell me how old your children are, just so I know which way to put them, which category to put them in, teens or kids. I'm going to do two separate episodes. That way, for the little ones, you don't have to skip around the scarier teen stories. Then and again, last year, we got a lot of pretty scary kid stories, too. Kids are twisted. It's awesome. Anyway, so... Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, at Scary to Sleep, Facebook. You can join the Facebook group where we have discussion um, threads on each story. Sometimes even the authors come in and introduce themselves and you can ask them questions. Uh, Tumblr, Reddit, all those good things. If you have a question or anything or have a submission, you can email me at scarytosleep at gmail.com. The website is scarytosleep.com. There is a, there's merch at teespring.com and remember by supporting my ad people, all my sponsors, you support me in a big, big way. And if you don't want, if you're not in the market for deodorant right now, just leave a rate and review on iTunes or Apple podcasts. And that helps me too. It just helps the show become more visible. All right. I'm rambling. It's just cause I missed you guys. I've been gone for a whole week and I missed you guys. Let me let you go now. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.